Well, good evening, guys. How are you doing? So this evening, you can turn with me in your Bibles to First Chronicles. I believe we're in chapter 13. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to look at these two chapters today. Some more of the events that took place during the kingdom of David. And as we look at the accounts, there are basically about three of them. Uh, we're going to glean from them lessons. And I think one of the things that's going to stand out to you this evening is, first of all, the importance of having reverence for God. Reverence for God, for the presence of the Lord. That's one of the things we're going to see and, and zero in on this evening. Uh, that'll definitely be a good lesson, I think. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we're going to see that David knew how to follow the Lord's direction. You know, I think a lot of times we make the mistake of believing that God always directs us in the same way in every situation. So if God were to direct you forward under one set of circumstances, the assumption would then be that, oh, well, when that set of circumstances take place, I just need to do the same thing God told me to do last time. Never take that for granted because many times God will have you respond differently. He will have you go in a different direction because God is always leading us with his eye, by his heart, and by, by his, his wonderful wisdom and all-knowing nature that allows us to step forward by faith. Amen? With that, let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening and we ask in the name of Jesus that we would understand your word that we would glean from your word and begin to realize what it is you want to speak to our hearts this evening. That as we take all of your word into our hearts, that your word would guide us and direct us, lead us, encourage us, and work mightily in and through our lives. Give us wisdom this evening, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, this evening, now let's look at verse... One, actually just want to look at verses one through four and make a few comments. In First Chronicles chapter 13, verse one, David conferred with each of his officials, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. First of all, I want to say that just something seeming right doesn't mean it's right. Have you noticed that? Just because something seems right doesn't mean it's right. And I have found oftentimes that when I thought something was the right thing to do, it may have been the right thing to do or at the wrong time. It may have been the wrong thing to do. And I think it's so vitally important that we seek and inquire of the Lord. In inquiring of the Lord, you're going to find that you need to have an open heart. Your heart needs to be open and surrendered to the Lord. Because otherwise, you're going to make assumptions. 
I do it. We all do it. Oh, of course the Lord wants me to share the gospel with my neighbor. I mean, of course he does, right? And maybe it's the wrong time. Maybe you don't know something about that person's heart that when you approach them, it's the worst time, and now you've put them off and offended them because you didn't pray first. It's happened to all of us. Well, here's what happens. David and the men of Israel, they decide to move the ark of God. Now, I'm sure by now most of you know about the ark of God. The ark of God was a box, and in that box was kept the tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments that were on stone, written and engraved by the finger of God. At this time, uh, it may have been that there were other elements or other things in the ark, like the jar of manna and Aaron's rod that budded, but certainly there were the tablets of the testimony. Here's the thing, though. The ark had been eight miles away in the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim for over 70 years. It wasn't in Jerusalem, not yet. It was in Israel, but it was in a place apart from the people. In fact, Abinadab and his sons Uzzah and Ahio had guarded the ark for two generations. But David desired to move the ark in order to spend time in God's presence. Now, no one would dispute that. That's a good thing. However, David was determined to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And what did he do in verse 1? He conferred with each of his commanders. He took a straw poll. He spoke with everyone who was involved, but at no point did it say that David inquired of the Lord. Later, we're going to see David inquired of the Lord. At this point, he just thought it was a good idea, conferred with other people, and they all thought it seemed like a good idea as well. And so they made this decision to do something that maybe they either shouldn't have done or were doing the wrong way because they never inquired of the Lord. So, what we learn is that David encouraged the people of Israel to gather together from throughout Israel to join them. So this is sort of a a democratic movement. It's a a, a popular movement. Everyone is behind it. it. It sounds great. It looks great. And no one would dispute that it's a good thing. But is it a God thing? Never mistake a good thing for a God thing. Now, what do I mean? Well, all God does is good. But all good things are not necessarily God at the moment. And that is to say that sometimes we figure out that this would be a good thing, and we say, well, it's a good thing. It must be a God thing. Let me just tell you, there's a big difference when you take that O out. A good thing is not always a God thing because of his timing, because of the methods, because of the approach, because of where our hearts need to be. I'll give you a perfect example. It's a good thing to go on a missions trip, but maybe your heart isn't in the right place. So it's not a God thing. It's a good thing to get involved in ministry, but maybe you're not ready. Maybe there's more preparation required and more things that need to happen in your heart before you're ready. And so a good thing is not a God thing. I want you to remember that because we always assume, I think, that good things are God things. God things are always good things, but good things are not always God things. So, David's getting a lot of support and affirmation from the people. Remember, he's rallying the people to bring the ark back to their capital city because they had neglected the ark throughout the entire 40-year reign of Saul. The people of Israel supported David in his desire to bring the ark back. And you know, it's funny because politicians oftentimes look at polls to see what people want. And we are a representative democracy, and so generally it's appropriate that representatives look at the polls. However, 
just because a majority of the people want to do something or like the idea doesn't make it the right thing to do, does it? So I think it's important. We have to have a conscience. We need to be led of God. And, and, and a good thing, again, a good thing can be a good thing, maybe not a God thing. So David assembled all Israel to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim. And he, he, in, in verses 5 and 6, we read, David assembled all the Israelites from the Shihor River in Egypt to uh, to Lebo Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim. And David and all the Israelites with him went to Bala of Judah, that is Kirith-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, that is Jehovah, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name, the name being Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how it's pronounced. So this is, this is really a good desire. No one's going to dispute that. In fact, he, he in verse uh, five, we know that he assembled all Israel. And one of the things you'll see, you know, you compare this, this account with some of the other portions of Scripture, including Second Samuel chapter 6, and you'll see he brought together 30,000 chosen men from throughout Israel. They gathered together at Balar of Judah, or Kiriath-Jerim, and they got there specifically with the intention to move the ark. Now, understand why this is not just a piece of furniture. I don't know if you're like me, back in the 80s, I had a, a panel van, you know, a a stripped-down van that was really good for moving things, especially pieces of furniture. So lo and behold, anybody that needed anything moved found my number and figured out a way to ask me for a favor. And, you know, when you, when you have a panel van like that, you know, everybody, everybody wants your help. Everybody wants you to move it. Um, here, you know, move the, move the furniture. But when you're moving a piece of furniture like a table or some chairs. It's, it's one thing. But you don't generally get a request to move something very delicate in that way uh, because people are more concerned. It's something maybe very valuable. You're not going to just throw it in the back of a van, right? I mean, that's the point. A table, some chairs, maybe a couch, but, you know, a set of crystal, you know, you know maybe not so much, right? So when you move things, obviously there is this issue of like, what are you moving and what's the appropriate way to move it? Well, remember that the presence of the Lord was enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. This was the meeting place of God and his people. So this isn't just some piece of furniture they're moving around. The ark was called by Jehovah or Yahweh. That is the name of the Lord God Almighty. So it was to be held not because in and of itself it was God or in and of itself it had any divine attributes, But because it was the place where God met with his people, it was very important that they treat this piece of furniture with respect. Are you with me? It's kind of like when you come into a church and, you know, it's just a church with some seats and some carpet and uh, some lighting. And, you know, you're just in another room, right? But no, you're not, because this is a house of worship. This isn't just like a, a theater. And it's not because God doesn't dwell in a theater or that he's not with you at all times. This is more of a sacred place. So we treat it with the requisite respect because it is a house of the Lord. Okay, are you with me? I mean, that that just makes sense, right? We treat it with a generous amount of respect. That's how they were supposed to deal with the ark. But you see, David had not inquired of the Lord in order to find out the proper way to move the ark. Now, the, the, the nearest thing I can liken it to, and it's because I'm talking about furniture, 
is people will go to Ikea, right, and they buy the item, but they take the directions, wonderful directions they have, right? You, nothing written, it's just these little pictures, but the pictures tell a thousand words, right? So if you follow, I have built probably more Ikea than most people, kitchens, furniture, stuff here at the church, cabinets, and I know that if I follow the directions explicitly, it's going to be put together properly. I can't tell you how many times I've seen furniture put together very haphazardly because the person just took the directions and threw them out. It is important that we have proper direction when serving God. There was a proper way to move the ark. David hadn't asked that question. He assumed. Now, David chose to use a new cart to transport the ark to Jerusalem. Look at verses 7 through 11. I'll read the account. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen, that is the oxen who were leading the cart, they stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. Now, here, here's the thing. Um, again, moving the ark was a good idea. Not asking for directions, never a good idea. As I've said, he chose to use a new card. Now, where did he get that idea? You might be wondering, where did he get that idea? Well, the Philistines, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4... They had defeated Israel, and they had captured the ark, and they had the ark in their possession for seven months. This was during a battle. And again, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And they had used a new cart to return the ark to Israel. Now, you might be saying, well, why would they return the ark to Israel? Well, you can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 6. What happened was God cursed and brought plagues, pretty nasty plagues, on the people because they had the ark in their possession. God allowed them to suffer his judgment, and his judgment were these these boils and these sores and all kinds of nasty things. And, And they would move it from one city to the other. One city would say, hey, don't you want the ark of the Lord? And they would move it to that Philistine city, and then that city would experience boils and sores, and then they'd move it to the next city. Finally, they realized, we gotta get rid of this thing. Every city that has it is cursed. So they decided, they came up with this plan. Put it on a a, a cart, put oxen, which have never led a cart before, untrained oxen, put them on the front of the cart and just let them go and see what happens. If they kind of meander around or don't go anywhere, then we'll keep the ark. If they bring it back to Israel, then we'll let it go. Well, what do you think happened? They brought it back to Israel. And so the Philistines were, goodbye, good riddance. We don't need this thing anymore. But they used a new card to do that because the Philistines didn't know. They're just trying to get rid of this thing. But you see, now the Israelites used a new card, a Philistine card, if you will, to move the ark to Jerusalem. So they're using worldly means to accomplish godly things. What? Worldly means to accomplish godly things. 
Here is a great concern I have for the church in our culture today. Many churches are embracing worldly things to accomplish godly goals. There is nothing wrong with what they're trying to do. It is the way in which they're trying to do it. Many times churches will embrace worldly ways of doing things. I'm not judging their hearts. David's heart was in the right place. But someone died because he didn't ask for directions. It is so important that we ask for God's direction. It's not just what you're doing, but are you doing it according to God's will? So Uzzah and Ahio, these sons of Abinadab, they're guiding the new cart pulled by the oxen. They're just doing what they're told. And David and all Israel, they're celebrating as they move the ark from Kirajirim. What the scripture tells us in Exodus 25 is, if he stopped to ask for directions, they should have had four Levites carry it on their shoulders with poles. They should have covered it when they moved it and never touched it. Not directly. See, they praised the Lord, but they did, this did not excuse their disobedience to the word of the Lord. Oh, but we were praising God. Yeah, but you were disobeying God. Yeah, but we were praising God. God is pleased only if you praise him according to obedience. Being disobedient to God is not something you can do and say, well, we were, we were doing it for God, so that excuses our disobedience. Never. Never. It's a great principle. So, what the Lord did, he struck down Uzzah when he sort of casually touched the ark, as if it was no big deal. Have you ever seen someone show sort of a casual or cavalier attitude towards something valuable? I've been in museums with people, and I love to go to the Met. And I'm not saying you can't get near a painting, but if you do, you might go to jail. Like, if you try to touch a Van Gogh, it's not going to go well. So sometimes people will be like, oh, look at that. And I get very nervous when they do that. I have respect for a Van Gogh. And that's just a painting that a a genius of a painter created, but still a a human being created, right? I I have respect. I'm not going to go up, you know, to self-portrait or to Starry Night or the workers in the field and suddenly just touch it and feel it. And, oh, isn't this nice? Feel the, you know, because I have respect for that art and that artist and certainly the museum. Apparently, these guys had gotten familiar with being around the ark so much because it was in their home, they didn't think anything of touching it. I think that's an important principle. We need to not assume too much familiarity with the things of God. We can irreverently sort of deal with the things of God and not treat them with their due respect. And he died for doing that. He had spent his entire life in the Lord's presence with the ark around, and he became sort of familiar to the extent where that that familiarity can breed contempt or just a casual cavalier attitude about the things of God. May we never feel this way about God's presence. Amen? He dared to touch the ark of God that sat in the Lord's most holy presence. I'm not saying he did it on purpose, he just wasn't thinking. Well, David was angry, as you can imagine. Didn't make him look very good. He was angry that Uzzah died while they were transporting the ark, and he felt responsible for the death of the man, and of course he actually was. So they named the place Perizuzah, outbreak against Uzzah. Now, David changed his mind, not surprisingly, about moving the ark to Jerusalem. 
He hit the pause button. You ever do that? You're doing something and it blows up in your face and you're like, you know what? Let's just hit the pause button. There have been times when I've been trying to move furniture up a narrow stairway. You get about halfway up and you realize uh, we need an engineer because I don't know how we're going to get this up the stairs. You know, it's so frustrating when it's something as simple as a box spring. You're thinking, why can't we get this up the stairs? But, you know, there's a way to do it. And so what you do, you know, bring it down, bring it down, bring it down, bring it down. You get the tape measure out. You plan your attack. You say, well, if, this, if, if, if a queen-size box spring was in, in that room at one time, we're going to be able to get that up there. And so you have to pause. You need to reflect. You hit the pause button. Listen, in ministry, I'm famous for hitting the pause button. We try to do something. It doesn't work out. We say, you know what? Let's just hit the pause button. Let's just, let's just think about what we did, what went right, what went well, uh, what didn't go so well. And let's, let's pray about it and let's seek the Lord and see what God would say. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you find out what works best by trying everything. But it's always better to ask the Lord for direction. So here's what happens. And uh, let's, let's uh, read in verses 12 through 14. David was afraid of God that day. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess so. And asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his home for three months. And now check this out. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. It's as if God's saying, if you show respect to my presence, I will bless you. If you don't, I will kill you. <laughs> you. You see, it is very important we understand to revere God. Now, here's, here's the thing. No one loves coffee more than me. No one. I, 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 no, Glenn might like coffee more than me. Okay? Me, Anthony. All right. So, not more than me, at least as much as I do. Let's put it that way, guys. Okay? And I love coffee, but, you know... The rule in the sanctuary always really was no coffee or drink in the sanctuary. But the carpet was so ratty for such a long time that we kind of didn't really enforce that rule. So then, praise God, new carpet. And now I'm running around telling everybody, I'm sorry, could you just drink it in the foyer? Because, you know, we don't want you struck dead if you spill it on the carpet. No, but we want to show respect to the house of the Lord, right? Which we should have been doing all along. But it didn't matter as much as it matters now. But still, I do still have an attitude of respect toward the house of the Lord. I don't want to worship in a theater or a coffee house. Well, you can. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I like a sacred house of worship because I think what it tells us is God, and in, in his presence, in God's presence, we are to have a reverent heart, a reverent attitude. Uh, there's too much irreverence. And lack of reverence, I think, in our worship in this culture today. We're a little too relaxed. You know, people come in in their pajamas, cup of coffee, put their feet up on the pew. Now, that doesn't happen here. But you wouldn't want that to get out of hand, right? My boss, I had a wonderful boss for many years. She was my boss probably for most of the 20 years I was at, in my career and at that job. And when they decided to go to business casual on Friday, she freaked out. And she always used to say this. Now, I liked it because casual clothes are a lot less expensive than suits, right? So I'm thinking, oh, good, my budget. But she used to say this, I'm against it. I'm like, Kathy, why are you against it? Casual dress, casual minds. 
That was her thing she always said. She just felt that if people were casual in their dress, that their approach would be casual at work too. You know what? She was right because pretty soon casual Friday degraded into like pajama bottoms and slippers. And, and you, you, well, I'm kind of exaggerating, but not by much. I think it's true that we have to have an attitude of reverence if we're going to truly enter into God's presence. We are called to come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. But we're also told to respect the Lord and revere the Lord. Or have we forgotten the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So having that attitude, I think, is very important. And David, he got that attitude quick, didn't he? I mean, after this. But God was blessing the house of Obed-Edom because they were, at this point, everyone was showing respect to the ark. But in the presence of God, with the proper respect, they were being blessed. Now, David knew that. He wanted to be blessed, but he was also afraid because he had taken a cavalier attitude in moving the ark. David's reverence for the Lord's presence increased through this terrible tragedy. That will happen. That will happen. And David postponed his plan. Well, he tried to determine what had gone wrong. I imagine he went back to the scriptures. You know, looked through the Ikea box and said, where are the directions? What did I do wrong? And, and you know, he didn't want to have anything terrible happen within his capital city. So he placed the ark in this man's home. And in the home of a Gittite, he was a Levite. And he was, this, this man had this in his family, in his home for three months, this Levite, Obed-Edom. And the Lord blessed him. So now David's saying, okay, okay. The household of Obed-Edom is being blessed Uzzah was put to death. We got to figure out what we did wrong. And we'll see in future studies, he did. And he course corrected, and they were able to move the ark to Jerusalem. So that's the lesson in the Lord's reverence. Let's go on to the next section here. And, and Ezra, the scribe, I believe, who compiled these accounts in First Chronicles, is actually just recording different snippets, the different little sections of the kingdom or the history of the kingdom of David for, for the purpose of encouraging the people toward reform and restoration. But that's one of the things that we read about. But then we get to chapter 14, and we're told in verses, uh, let's look at just verses 1 through 2. We're told, now Hiram king of Tyre, which is up toward the area of Lebanon, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs, stonemasons, and carpenters to build a palace for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. Now, there's so much in that. Just a cursory review will tell you uh, David knew the will of the Lord concerning his life. He knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. He knew that God had done that work. He didn't take credit for it. Another thing I look at is the Lord had established him. That is, the Lord fulfilled his promise to make him king over Israel. We've already read about that. And notice, he also knew that his kingdom had been highly exalted, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his people, Israel. So knowing that put David in the right state of heart, which is very important. He purchased materials and hired workers from Hiram, king of Tyre, to build his palace, which he did. But knowing, clearly knowing that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, allowed him to function according to God's will. What is God's will for your life? What do you clearly know about God's call upon your life? See, once you know that, then you can step forward, right? We were talking about knowing God's will and 
stepping out, knowing whether it's just a good thing or a God thing. See, you need to seek the heart of the Lord like David did so that you can know that you know that you know what God has called you to do. So that when someone says, oh, we need someone to, to serve in the nursery, and you say, well, you know, I'm not called to serve in the nursery. You can say that because you know you're called to serve the teenagers, maybe. You know, it's important that you know, and not enough people ask those questions like David did to find out what their calling is. So I encourage you, do that. Also, David clearly knew that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. It's very important that you understand that God will lift you up. As it says, he resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If your heart is to serve others, then we know this will be true, that God will exalt you, lift you up, that has put you in a place of service, but not for you. Oh, I really wish more leaders and pastors would remember this. They should. Jesus made it clear in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, verse 45. He did not come to serve. Uh, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you understand that, that that was Jesus's heart, not to be served, even though he's worthy, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, why is it a, a sort of beneath us to have the same heart towards ministry? You are called to serve. Ministry means service. You're called to ministry. You're called to serve others. Very simple. David understood that, which is, which is what made him a shepherd of Israel, which made, is what made him a man after God's own heart and the king, the anointed king of Israel. So he figured that out. Now, that doesn't mean everything he did was right. And I love the fact that we see David, warts and all, we, we recognize he did some things wonderfully. He made mistakes, like with the ark, and he, and he, and he self-corrected. But this man had one very tragic flaw. And it's what ultimately cost him so much. And it had to do with women. It had to do with members of the opposite sex. He just did not restrain himself or refrain himself from engaging in relations with women. We know that because it ultimately brought it, was brought to a head when, you know, he was with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and had to cover up an unwanted pregnancy and had him murdered. That happened because of a flaw in David's character that started a long time before that. That wasn't the moment of failure. The moment of failure was when David stopped restraining himself from giving himself over to his lust and to his flesh. And that was a problem. Still a man after God's own heart, I want to stress that, but a man that was very passionate about the Lord and very passionate about women. That passion was a good thing in its proper place. I like to say it this way, fire in the fireplace keeps you warm. Fire in your home in your carpet and on your couch, burns it down. Passion's a good thing, but it has to be in its appropriate and proper place. So here's what happened. Uh, verses 3 through 7 tell us that in Jerusalem, David took more wives. He already had somebody, took more. And became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elephet, Noga, Nephig, Yaphia, Elishama, Beliada, and Okay, so we're given some of those names there. David continued to unwisely 
multiply wives as the king over all Israel. They, they were told in Deuteronomy not to do this, but David did. Now, David, check this out. David already had at least six wives and six sons when he became the king of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 3. You remember, he was king of Judah for seven and a half years, and then later, 33 years, he was the king of both the northern and the southern kingdoms, that is Israel and Judah. Another thing that had happened was there was a man by the name of Ishbosheth. He had returned. He was actually one of the sons of Saul. He had returned David's first wife, Michal, who was the daughter of Saul, in order to reunite the kingdoms. What David said was, I want my ex-wife back. Whether he did this to humiliate her or her family, we don't know. But we do know that unfortunately, through no fault of his own, he married Saul's daughter. And then when Saul didn't like David anymore and was jealous of him, he took his daughter away from David and gave her to another man. So she was effectively divorced and given to another person. Falatiel, I think his name was. And you can read about this in the scriptures, but... When David became king of all Israel, one of his demands was, I want my ex-wife back. And we'll see that didn't work out real well either. We'll get to that. But for now, just enough to say that, okay, so he didn't have enough women, right? Because he had six wives and six sons when he became king of Judah. And we know that he wanted his other ex-wife back. Uh, David added even more concubines and wives after he relocated to Jerusalem. And this is because in the ancient world, a harem and the abundance of children was a sign of strength in this ancient culture. This is about pride as much as it is about lust and sex. It's about pride. David's passion for women was a weakness that would ultimately break him. And it did. Now the names of David's 13 youngest sons are given with Bathsheba's four sons listed first for obvious reasons. Bathsheba became his favorite wife. I have a favorite wife, too. You know, she happens to be my only wife <laughs> for the last 33 years. But David had a lot of wives, so saying a favorite wife in his case is definitely a problem. So the names of only 11, I'm just being silly. The names of only 11 sons are given in 2 Samuel 5. The names of David's children with his concubines are not included in Scripture because they were considered to be less noble, those sons of the concubines, not in the line of succession. But uh, in here we see 13 uh, of, of David's youngest sons. All right, so what does that tell us? Well, David just sort of gave himself over to his flesh in this area of his life. In other areas of his life, he was devout. In this area, he just gave himself over to whatever felt good. He's the king, and this is what he wanted. And it destroyed him, slowly, and then ultimately destroyed him. Brought all kinds of problems into his family, too. All kinds of problems. But we'll get to that eventually. In the meantime, we're told a more heroic story of David's uh, reign. Uh, this particular account is in verses 8 through 17. Let's read the entire account, a couple of comments, and then we'll finish up. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephraim, so David inquired of God. You see that? How do you think he learned that lesson? Well, the hard way. So David inquired of God, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? 
And the Lord answered him, Go, I will hand them over to you. So David and his men went up to Balperazim, and there he defeated them. And he said, As waters break out, God has broken out against my enemies by my hand. So that place was called Balperazim. Again, the Lord who breaks out. And the Philistines had abandoned their gods there, and David gave orders to burn them in the fire. Notice, he didn't even want them. He just destroyed them. Once more, the Philistines raided the valley. So same place, same army. So David inquired of God again. I think that's the, the real heroic moment because it would have been real easy for David to say, we got this. Remember what happened last time? We got this. No, no, no. He inquired of God again. Or, and it says, and God answered him, do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move out to battle because that will mean God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So... David, to his credit, did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made all the nations fear him. Interesting. How did that happen? Well, listen. There was a reason why the northern kingdom of Israel came to David after he had been king of the southern kingdom of Judah for seven and a half years. They wanted David to deliver them from the Philistine occupation in the north. Now, the Philistines perceive David as a threat to their occupation. So the first thing they do, they go on the offense. They search for David immediately after he became king of all Israel. And David defeated the Philistines. Uh, This all happened before he actually even conquered the city of Jerusalem. So it's a little out of order, you know, chronologically, but, but that's not the point. David escaped to the safety of the cave of Adullam in Hebron because, again, he didn't have Jerusalem just yet. David knew the best areas to hide within the tribal land of Judah. He had been hiding for years from Saul. So he chose to hide in the stronghold that he had used in the past. And then the Philistines march out and they encamp in what's called the Valley of Rephraim. Their strategy was to divide the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, making it impossible for David to rule the entire kingdom. Pincer move, right? Right through the middle of his kingdom. Cut them off. Weaken them. So David sought and received the Lord's counsel. We're told in, in, in other scriptures that he sought the Lord's counsel through Abiathar the priest. In 1 Samuel, the Lord directed David through Abiathar, who used the urim and the thummim. Are you familiar with this? When they built the tabernacle in the wilderness under Moses, God instructed them to use the urim and the thummim. We know very little about the way these things worked, but so I could only speculate. But one of the things we do know is God told them to use these. Maybe they were gems. Maybe they were something more random. We don't know. But God told them to use Urim and Thummim, and they were used to discern the Lord's will. And using the Urim and the Thummim, the Lord directed David to immediately attack the Philistines, and he promised him the victory. Now, I could spend all night trying to speculate as to how these things worked. Some people said it was like dice that you rolled. I don't really believe that. Some others said that, you know, there was a way that they worked. I really just don't know. We're not told. But they worked. So David was directed to immediately attack the Philistines. He sought the Lord's direction before acting. Can you just stop there a minute? Please seek the Lord's direction before acting. In every instance, 
Don't take it for granted. Should I do this? Should I do it? No, I'm not saying that and you're in the diner and you don't know whether you should have pancakes or waffles. And so you say, does anybody have Urim and Thummim? Because I'm not sure which, you know, don't be ridiculous. I'm just suggesting in, in decisions that really matter, decisions like, should I move? Should I get involved in a relationship with this person? Should I get involved in this ministry? Should I attend this church? Should I take this job, go to this school? Kind of big decisions, life-changing decisions. You might want to pray. We don't need Urim and Thummim. We have the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord and a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will lead us. Whether we turn to the right or to the left, our ears will hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, go in it. So seek the Lord and he'll guide you, he'll direct you. I find that every time I seek the Lord's direction, he gives it to me. And when I don't, I usually go the wrong way. Almost always. So David had learned through many painful lessons to wait on the Lord. I will wait on the Lord, my soul waits. In his word will I put my trust. So, David defeated the Philistines at Balparazim. David and his men carried off the idols that the Philistines abandoned. And David gave orders to burn them with fire because his heart was for the Lord. He had no room for idols. You say, oh, but they might have been valuable. If there's anything in your life that's more valuable than honoring God, burn it. Can I just tell you? Burn it. The sooner, the better. The sooner, the better. Oh, but I like my new TV. Then don't worship it. Okay. Well, the Philistines marched out again, and they encamped again in the valley of Rephaim. And the Lord directed David to attack the Philistines from behind and promised them victory. This is a completely different strategy. Same army, same place. But David inquired of the Lord. He didn't take it for granted. God led him differently. And I'm going to tell you something. God may tell you to do something on a Sunday and tell you to do something differently, not sinful, but differently on the next Sunday. Whether you're teaching a Sunday school class, involved in ministry, ministering to your neighbor, you need to seek the Lord. I want to stress this. Cry out to God. It can be a simple prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, direct me. Lord, should I talk to my neighbor now? Last time you didn't want, I didn't really feel led. How about now? How about now? And you'll find that if you pray that way, God will direct you. Amen? David was told to attack them in front of the balsam trees, and he was told to wait until he could hear them marching from the tops of the trees. Now, how do you do? You put a sentry in the top of the tree, and he sits there and waits, because he's going to hear the army before the people on the ground, because you're higher up and you have line of sight. So that was the idea. Put someone up high, and then they can see and hear the army before it gets too close. David was told to wait until he could hear them marching from the tops of the trees. Now, here's the lesson. So if you tuned me out already, here's the lesson. Sometimes the Lord provides us with immediate direction, like he did the first time. Sometimes the Lord has us wait for further direction. Which is it? I don't know. Have you asked God? I'm in a situation in my life at this very moment where I am waiting for further direction. But I've been in situations where I had to respond immediately, and God wanted me to. So you need to pray. And so David defeated the Philistines from Gibeon to Gezer, and he ended the occupation of Israel. Then later on he went on, and and we've already read about it, he took Jerusalem as his capital. And David's fame spread throughout the surrounding nations, and they all feared him. They didn't really fear him. They feared the God he served. I'm going to close this in prayer, but... Is there some decision you need to make this week? Maybe today? Maybe maybe you needed to make it yesterday and you just haven't been able to make it? Maybe it's a pending decision about something. 
Have you done everything except God? Ask God. Have you been up all night trying to figure out, you know, you do pros and cons chart. I do that too. Pros and cons chart, you know. Well, if I do this, if I ask everybody's advice that you know, bring 30,000 people in to give you their opinion, like David did about moving the ark. But have you read the directions? Have you gone to God's word? Have you asked God to lead you through his word by the power of the spirit? Have you asked him to direct you with his eye to, that you would hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it? I promise you, I promise you after 35 years, if you actually ask God to direct you, he will. Lord, Heavenly Father, direct us. Guide us and lead us with your eye. Bring us to the place you want us to be in the timing that you've called us to be there. Lead us forward or tell us to wait. Whatever it is, Lord, we submit ourselves and surrender our hearts to you, wanting to be led of you for your glory. Give us the patience and the wisdom to know how to follow you and how to follow your lead with obedience. And Lord, if there are areas of our life like David had that are not surrendered to you, may we surrender them to you now. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.